Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Okay, let me start this uh, podcast with an apology. We taped this podcast back in, I think, September or something like that. So big apologies to James Gimian or Jim Gimian, who is the publisher of Mindful Magazine, which is a fantastic magazine, a great place to learn about all the latest and greatest in the, uh, what I like to think of as the big public health revolution that is mindfulness and meditation. And from his perch as publisher, Jim is able to sort of see all these trends and uh, see all the interesting people who are working in this area. And also, he's a great connector of people in this space. Not for nothing, he's also been uh, meditating for decades. And uh, so it has a lot of interesting uh, perspectives on all of this from an interior uh, point of view. So anyway, enough said. Here's Jim Gimian. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. Great to chat with you. So how did you get into meditation? Well, I, I got into meditation really from a lot of disillusionment in my college years. That's how I got into it. I mean, I, I, had, I went to Stanford University, uh, arguably one of the fine you know, yeah. universities. Got to know professors very well because yeah. it was, was a small place. Was that the Ken Kesey days? Was he doing acid and sitting He was a little earlier. He was the okay. early, okay. early 60s. But that does come into the story. I mean, first we had uh, arguably the best professors in, in a small place. You got to know them. And my observation was that they were expert in their field, but there was no transference from that experts to their everyday lives. I mean, their everyday lives were a mess. And I just thought to myself, do I want to wind up there? So that was part of the disillusionment. Uh, the other part was I was very active in the anti-war movement. Um, we shut down the university for a quarter. And yet still getting to see the leaders of the anti-war movement, they had no more insight about the roots of aggression and how to under, under, so uproot those roots of aggression than the people they were um, protesting against. And I thought again, you know, do I want to wind up there? And, and, and the third thing was, you know, it was a time of experimentation with, um, with drugs, and I certainly did uh, my fair share of scientific inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was the first experience that there was something beyond this habitual thought pattern. There was a world outside of that, and that this experience of being interconnected with all the other elements of life became a visceral one. But the shortcoming there is you just couldn't continue to repeat that as some, you know, taking some external Drugs. agent. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Just, it just, again, it was clear it wasn't leading anywhere for those people who did. So how to find a way that answered those questions for me? Uh, that was uh, 1970. I dropped out of Stanford and never graduated because it wasn't relevant. Uh, but it led me to an inquiry of how do you address those? How do you uh, live an authentic life where the you behind the screen and the you in, you know, in front of the screen are the same person? Um, how do you address those deep roots of aggression that seem to be you know, prevalent in our society, very evident nowadays? And you know, how does one sustain the kind of uh, relationship with those habitual thoughts that gets us kind of, as you say, not dragged around by them. Yeah, man, you and were a much deeper me. dude in your early 20s than I was. <laughs> well, <laughs> well I, I didn't seem deep, I have to say. I, I guess really with the draft hanging deep. over you. Hey, man, yeah, Yeah, it was a pretty intense time in that way. So did you have a, a good number and didn't, that didn't get called? or I first failed my pre-induction physical because I was so freaked out at the uh, prospect that I was pulled out of the line and told that I had high blood pressure, so I had to do some medical um, workups. But but then the uh, lottery came in and I had a high number, yeah. uh, which didn't really solve the problem because a lot of my friends either were drafted or went to jail uh, or the threat of jail because of their their uh, unwillingness. So uh, and at the time. My older brother was doing his third tour of duty in Whoa. Vietnam, so this was a very personal, yeah, uh, and and difficult. And he made thing. it through, though. Yeah, yeah, he did. So, how did you go from disillusioned college kid dabbling a little bit with drugs to actually starting to meditate? One of the things that happened by chance was um, a friend of mine 
was quitting his job as the caretaker for a very remote remote uh, farm in the foothills of the Sierra Nevadas in Northern California. And I had spent time hanging out with him. He left, and I applied for the job, and I was there for a year. And it was pretty much like being on retreat. So during that time, I took uh, uh, yoga in Nevada City uh, and a yoga studio there, which uh, would, would stack up by today's standards, a great, great place, 1970, 71. Um, I got into meditation. I started reading books. I started going on an all-vegetarian diet and lost about 50 pounds because I'd eat 50, 50 pounds of carrots every week, either in juice or in raw form. Uh, so um, out of that year— That has ended because we just had lunch and you had tuna. So. <laughs> right. Long time ago. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's funny because I've been friend, we've been friends for years, and I didn't know 90% of these <laughs> biographical—this is really interesting. Well, you know— uh, I have lived my experience, and I have it reminded in my discursive thoughts plenty. So I know it. When we get together, I'm much more fascinated by hearing your story. Also, so, I'm a narcissist, and I talk a lot, so that, that, <laughs> well, that takes, takes up a lot I, of that. It's easy to encourage you, but I, I appreciate <laughs> that because I always hear fascinating insights about people getting into meditation, and I learn from you saying those things. So, Well, thank you. Yeah. So, so you're, you're on the farm. Yeah. Imbibing carrots, yeah. um, uh, and and you start meditating. Yeah, a little and, bit and there. really trying a whole range. You know, that was one of the blessings of the time. There was such a wide array of options available. Teachers coming through, writing books. There were Sufis. There were uh, Christian myth- mystics. There were Buddhists. Uh, Ramdas, who was uh, getting people to stare at candles, and you know, I tried a little bit of all of them. But there was something at a certain point that a book called Meditation in Action, uh, a very slim volume about mindfulness meditation that just penetrated. And from there, I came down after about a year and, and uh, saw Chogyam Trungpa, the Tibetan Buddhist teacher. Uh, and um, within about six months, I was in, back in Palo Alto in the book and publishing industry. And uh, on in the extra time, starting a meditation center for people who wanted to get involved in mindfulness practice. Now, Trungpa ended up starting something called Shambhala, um, which you know it has it, people who listen to this podcast may know it. They have uh, uh, meditation centers all over the country, all over the world. I could, or maybe all over North America. Uh, you can correct me wherever I run astray here. Um, and as, as I and they also did some publishing, still do some publishing. So. Uh, what used to be known as the Shambhala Sun is now the Lion's Roar, and also a magazine called Buddha Dharma. And you were the publisher? Yes, for 15 years when it was known as the Shambhala Sun. That is a separate and independent nonprofit. Ah, I so see. So it originated back in the 90s from that community, but uh, has long been independent. Interesting. And renamed as the Lion's Roar Foundation, yeah. And then uh, when I got to know you... I don't know, it was like seven years, six, seven years ago, you were uh, the publisher of uh, what was then the Shambhala Sun, and you guys were starting a new venture right? called Mindful. We started covering the emerging mindfulness movement from the Shambhala Sun. We did articles on Richie Davidson. We did articles on John Kabat-Zinn. And we started small, and we did... Um, cover stories, and then we did special editions, and it became very clear after about three years that this was something that was taking root in a big and and significant way and required its own independent nonprofit that was dedicated to the mission of bringing secular mindfulness practice everywhere that people would want to have it brought in. So in 2011, we uh, established the 5013C, a nonprofit, mission-oriented. And and really, we still see ourselves uh, as a mission-oriented field-building operation to support the champions in the field who are doing the incredible work, many of whom have, you know, come on your podcast, uh, and to support that work and help build the the credibility, first of all, and then the, the activation, the way in which it could help. From the outside, we look like a media operation because we sustain ourselves from a print magazine, mindful.org, the website, and those have grown over the four years of the startup world, uh, which you know about now. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, it's a real crapshoot. 
And uh, I had a lot of challenge in the early stages convincing philanthropic organizations to invest because startups are dangerous and magazine startups are pure death. (laughs) So that was a real challenge. (laughs) While around me, uh, all of our colleagues uh, who were doing um, uh, profit startups. Apps and things like that. Apps and all sorts of things were getting uh, three million, six million, uh, 10 million. It was a little discouraging. Yeah. Um, but uh, certainly understandable. But but so how's it going now? Uh, you are going. You've been you've been up and running for a we while. We are just and I... completing our fourth year of print publication. How many subscribers? Uh, we have about well total circulation subscribers. Newsstand copies is about eighty thousand. Good number. And um, tremendous growth in the last year on the digital side. About six hundred thousand unique visitors and. Um, 135,000 people who get our newsletters and emails. Tremendous growth. We've just reached the sort of end of that startup phase. I'm so happy to tell you. I got more time in the garden this summer than I have for five years. And given that you live in Canada, the summer's about two weeks long. <laughs> Four. Four weeks yeah. long. But it, it, it's true. Um, you know, we, we really feel we've achieved the proof of concept stage that the media, that there is sufficient and sustainable interest to have a business that prints, sells print magazines and uh, creates content for both digital and also special packages. Uh, We've just brought out our first special publication where we've repurposed content from Mindful Magazine to a beautiful book, Getting Started with Mindfulness for, for Beginners, bringing all of that content from various issues together in a beautiful um, additional. Nice. Yeah. So, but for, for for people who, you know, listen to the the podcast and just may want a good read, what t- tell us, I mean, I know that Mindful's great, but just just walk everybody through what's in the magazine. I'll give you a high-level version because I think more important than me doing it is for you to have Editor-in-Chief Barry Boyce in this yes. chair so he can tell you about the editorial relationship with our with our readers. He definitely will be in the chair. Yeah. He's also yeah. a hilarious dude, just yeah. like you. Uh, yeah. And I should yeah. say, and both you and Barry have been invaluable advisors to me as I've stumbled along in this world. You know, from years before I, I wrote the book, and you were advising me. You guys both read several versions of drafts and, and gave me lots of pointers and helped me figure out, uh, have helped me make key decisions along the way. So you've been incredibly supportive that way. And you play that role for a lot of people who are in the mindfulness space, both you and Barry. So credit where credit's due. Uh, and that probably didn't even give you uh, sufficient credit for the amount of just pure gold guidance you've provided me in particular over the year and I know, over the years. And I know that you do that with many other people. But in terms of what's in the magazine for the listeners, just give us a, a, a high-level sense. As any magazine is structured, there are the small bits and pieces in the front of the magazine that concentrate on news you can use, things that are helpful in your life, short bits that are easy to read. The center of the book, called the editorial well, has a range of more thoughtful pieces that'll cover some of the wonderful work that's being do- done, like uh, our launch issue was on our friends in Baltimore who do the incredible mindfulness work in the school system. Um, yeah, Ali Smith was Ali uh, Smith, a guest Otman. on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, he's an amazing yeah. dude, and his brother, Atman, and and, yeah. and and their colleague, Andy. Absolutely, yeah. That was a great article. Well, a range of stories like that that bring to the, the um, community of people who have a growing interest examples of how this practice and its various forms can be helpful in their lives and how it's uh, affecting the society that we live in. That's a very important thing to us because for us, as I said, the mission here is to bring the benefits of mindfulness to wherever in society the challenges are there. And, you know, nowadays that's just about everywhere. And they're wonderful people who are doing this work. We want to tell their stories, support their work connect them to others who are doing their work. And the stories help us do that, you know. And so if I'm uh, interested in meditation, you know, practicing some, maybe not, maybe thinking about practicing, what's the elevator pitch? Why should I read Mindful? One place that you can get credible information you can trust about 
the ways you can get engaged, the places you can go to get support, the um, community of people who are doing the same thing, the kinds of things that people getting into any new venture need. If you're a, if you're a golfer, you know you want to get the best instruction, the best in- equipment. You want to learn about what others are doing, and, and we're doing the same thing for this community. So there's a proliferation of information because of how this has become so popularized. But we have gotten now clearly the reputation as the authoritative voice of trusted, credible information on the science, on the different kinds of practices you can do. You know, there are a lot of things nowadays that are called mindfulness. And the nuances are hard to detect if you're new to the field. In particular right now, as I go around, as I do, as part of my job and seeing what people are doing in the trenches, I have in Los Angeles and in New York City in the last month been to meditation mindfulness days in local centers where an array of teachers are presenting, each one of them touting the science as finally proving that mindfulness is beneficial, and then quickly following that, presenting their meditation that they want to teach, and not knowing that none of the science that they're presenting was done on the form of meditation (laughs) that they're teaching. (laughs) So mindful helps you sort that sort of thing out. Right. And that's kind of critical. So how how much of a – this is such a baby – I don't know what do we call it an industry, a movement, a, a, a health uh, revolution. I don't know what 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 we call it, but this field is so sort of new and a bit of it's got a real wild west thing going on. How how tricky is it to navigate if you're a newcomer? Well, I think that it's it's not all that tricky. Um, I I arguably know the field and what's going on as well as anybody because it's my job. No, I no, I would around. say you you are just because you can't say this. You really have a, 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 a vantage point on what's going on in this field that is uh, hard to surpass uh, because you're talking to everybody. You know, you're talking to everybody. And also you bring to it decades of meditation practice and, and a real, uh, I think, very hard to question, uh, I would say, unimpeachable sort of uh, um, uh, understanding of what meditation can do in an individual life, uh, and you've taught it, uh, you've written about it, so you have a real, you have real standing to make, to answer a bunch of the questions that I'm about to ask you. I know you can't say any of that, but I'm saying it to the to the listeners. You're eating up a lot of time with these. This is my show, comments. man. I, I, a, I can say whatever the hell I want. It's my yes, show, and B, there's no time limit, so <laughs> okay. you can. Uh, you, All right. All right. Big, well, big. kind of you to say. Um, my, my pleasure. But I my may p- take it back. You keep uh, wise, you know, <laughs> cracking wise like that. But but my point, dude, and I did have one, uh, is that I can say without any hesitation that 90% of the people that are doing the work in the trenches have the highest motivation, inspiration to actually help people, and a reliable amount of training to be able to back that up. How long that's going to be the case is the question. Do you see in early signs of hucksterism? Oh, yeah. Sure. Well, one example is what I just told you about people t- touting the science and then presenting a meditation. You know, it's sort of like, you know, t- take vitamin D and it's going to prove this medical uh, condition. That's the research proves it. But here, take some of this vitamin A. You know, it's like <laughs> there's no relationship. So, yes, there are lots of early signs. But, you know, I think... In the early stages of any kind of fundamental cultural change, which is what's really in question right now, is how can this practice help us in our relationships, in the way we, we, we do what we do as a society? Not just how does it help me in my life. That's important. But if it doesn't change the way in which we are as a society, it's really not going to be that helpful. So I think the point is that In the early stages, we've got leaders who are genuinely trained and inspired, followed by people jumping in to capitalize on it for a whole range of reasons. And part of that reason is experimentation. So I think we're getting close to the period where we need things, definitely like credentials, credentials. 
and assessments and all those, and I'm not against those. But I don't think we want to lose the fact that we're 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 going through something for the first time. And if we clamp down too soon on um, some of the experiments that are taking place, we're going to lose a lot of innovative, exciting, and different solutions of how mindfulness can be applied. And I see a lot of those things that you never would have imagined that uh, mindfulness might be helpful. We met a, a Spanish language lab professor at the University of Virginia. The greatest fear in acquiring a new language has something to do with you know, the brain that I can't repeat to you. But it's a huge obstacle. And she's actually pioneering research on applying mindfulness to overcoming this obstacle. And it's showing a lot of promise. Now, I would never have guessed that one of the things mindfulness might be able to help with is foreign language acquisition. And that may not seem like the biggest problem in the world, but that's a huge, vast area of yeah. life. Yeah, of course. And it's just uh, you know multiple examples of something like that. So it's a lot of, of, of pretty interesting experimentation. And I, I'm a pretty conservative person, but I really am, am, am feeling that this particular period of, of explosion of interest is, yes, the Wild West, but that's kind of an exciting time. Yeah, I agree. But the, one of the, the, our mutual friend, David Gellis, who wrote an excellent book called Mindful Work, he's a reporter for the New York Times and wrote about how mindfulness is showing up in workplaces all over, all over, the, all over the country and the world. Um, he raises the, the idea that maybe we need some sort of good housekeeping seal of approval so that you know that if somebody's coming into your workplace to, to teach you mindfulness, that they actually have some training, they know what they're doing. Because after all, they're getting under the hood of your mind. Do you think that's that that's something that should be considered, and who would do it? It's already being talked about. It There's is. a couple of groups, actually three different groups, who have the kind of background and training to do it, and they're taking a very slow and methodical step because, you know, who has the ability to create that in a way that's unimpeachable? I would say there's probably, you know, five or six threads of conversation, all with little different, you know, differences in their approach that need first to come together so it's as inclusive. Because if you, if you lock that stuff down too soon, there will be people outside of that system who aren't approved they're not going to discontinue their work, but they're going to continue it outside of that. There's just too much uncertainty in the science or in the outcomes of some of this research for us to be able to say at this stage here we can, you know, give this the seal of, of approval. We, we, if you talk about businesses and how some of them are bringing mindfulness in, they're either doing it because there's an internal champion who themselves is processed – or that person, if they're not processed and trained, or the HR leader, is surveying all the other people, their, their, their peers and cohorts, to test what's been working, what's not been working, what's tr trustworthy. So there's pretty robust crowdsourcing system in place. Or read mindful.org or Mindful Magazine, and you have a resource that can pretty much reflect back to you the things you know you can, you can trust. So... Yes, it's important. Is the time right? I don't think quite yet. Um, you're, you, you, move, you circulate quite widely in the mindfulness world. And these are all people who allegedly meditate, right? Um, and yet there are politics. Um, and so – and how – I mean how are the politics you think – you know, because there are different groups who may want, who may feel like they have the right to say, well, the, we, we should give the good housekeeping seal of approval. And there are different companies competing against one another. Do you th uh, are, are there sharp elbows in this world uh, that you see? Or is it actually a pretty nice place compared to almost any other industry? Given that everybody's meditating or says they are meditating. I, th I think it's, um, you didn't say this, but to make a point, I'll exaggerate on what you did say. I think it's naive to think that mindfulness is going to rid us of our human foibles. <laughs> uh, we're going to have politics. We're going to have aggression. We're going to have um, all sorts of neurotic behaviors. I think, as we know from the way meditation is taught, being aware of those things, creating an environment where they can arise and be seen clearly 
and then who knows what, but not instantaneously acted upon. That's more maybe that's really what we're hoping for. So in in the the mindfulness world or industry, I would say the real danger is not that there's politics, but the presumption that there shouldn't be. Because then what you get is those things that are natural to humans get submerged. And I have seen that. And and that worries me more. Because, I, I, I mean, anybody's going to tell me there's not politics or territory or aggression or ambition. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be suspicious of that. That's, that's just not believable. Uh, when we don't have the capacity to bring it out and talk about it and be able to process it and have mindfulness practice help us do that, that that's when I would get worried. I love I think, it. Yeah. Well played, dude. The, do, do you have a sense of where all this is going? Like wh- wh- when you – given – as I said, given that you're having so many conversations with so many people and you really do have a, a bird's eye view uh, uh, on what's happening in the mindfulness space, since I'm struggling to come up with a way to describe it, um, where is it? Are we heading toward a world where like everybody meditates uh, and that it changes the nature of our society? That's a little utopian. But wh- where do you see this all going? One of the things that we adopted in starting Mindful was – a kind of um, systems change approach um, where, or you could say sort of network theory in the sense that we saw nodes of activity, really vital, um, inspiring, genuine mindfulness activity, but they were disconnected. And the theory in network theory is if you connect those nodes, then at a certain point they can jump to making a larger network, and that larger network can develop qualities that the other networks didn't have, things that you can't even expect. So that's why a lot of our work in the magazine and on the website and in person has been to support those nodes, to get to know what people are doing in the trenches, spend time with them. And then to make the connections. And then to make the connections. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. The weather's getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. So if you were to tell me five years ago that we would already be beyond the cheerleading stage, that we were no longer having to prove to people that mindfulness was a good thing, but rather let's get down and find the details of how it can be a good thing, I would have told you, no way. It's going to take much longer than that. Most of the people you know who are in this world and are leaders of it 
say they've been involved for 40 years, like I have, they spent the first 35 not telling anybody they were involved. Because <laughs> it was embarrassing. Com- it was yeah. a conversation sto- stopper. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Turn away. You know, just so consistently. So we're just getting into a period where not only is it okay to talk about it, but you're like lauded as some kind of hero because you did this, which is kind of ludicrous to 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 most of us in the, that position. So I think it's very hard to predict where it's going to go. But just to give you two examples that I think blew my mind and point to where it could go. One is the all-parliamentary committee in the UK. I don't know if you've heard about that. Yes, I have, but tell everybody. Very quickly, um, 135 members of parliament went through mindfulness training and through the work of of, uh, uh, a then-active member of parliament, now retired, and a the leader of the nonprofit who was bringing this training, uh, they've actually got established funding proposals in the UK Parliament about bringing mindfulness into uh, the healthcare system, MBCT, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, into the prison system because it's been shown to reduce, you know, to recidivism, so that people aren't coming back to prison. They are now in contact with legislators from 35 different countries who have small, nascent programs going on in the Middle East, in, throughout Europe, in Asia, soon perhaps in Canada. And um, again, something I never would have imagined, that we'd have politicians and legislators who would take, not only see this seriously as beneficial to themselves and hard jobs, but bringing it into society. So that's a sign of taking it much further and much faster than I would have thought. The other one is what I recently learned about in Flint, Michigan. So um, I'll take a step back, saying one of the most um, inspiring citywide uh, research activations going on right now is in Louisville, Kentucky. We just covered in our recent issue a very inspiring mayor who's making it a compassionate city, bringing mindfulness and compassion training in research throughout the school system, huge, huge um, uh, research project uh, supported by the University of Virginia. But Louisville has a long history of being a contemplative city, with Thomas Merton having been there. Lots of it was a Catholic. It was a uh, Catholic monk, yeah, uh, and wrote a lot about the overlap between Christianity and contemplative practice. Exactly, yeah. and had one of his main inspirations in the streets of Louisville, and the city's had that f- feeling for a long time. But switch now to Flint, Michigan. Now, this is a town that's, um, you know, as mainstream as it gets in terms of the cities that have been devastated by industrial decline, uh, lowering tax uh, uh, bases in the city. The population is dwindled. And then, of course, most recently, the devastation of lead poisoning in the water system. Through the work of a very mainstream um, foundation, the Crim Fitness Foundation, who got started 40 years ago uh, supporting Special Olympic running races in terms of getting people active and moving and expanding that. Then about 15 years ago, they added nutrition as part of that to help and started like a YMCA, programs for citywide. Through a set of circumstances, they are now adding mindfulness to that, to nutrition and active lifestyle. And they've been asked to bring this into the school system and the medical system in Flint. And the early trainings for the teachers has provided the basis for them being invited in because they're saying things like, my class hasn't paid attention to me like that ever before. They're actually able to do the work. I feel like I'm less under siege than I've ever been. I want more of that. Nobody's proselytizing mindfulness to them. They're responding and wanting it. Same with the medical system. So they're just about to embark on bringing those programs in. And this is not coming from some group of mindfulness, uh, longtime mindfulness uh, uh, advocates who are trying to devise ways to promote mindfulness. It's arising from a, a foundation which did have one of its leaders being engaged personally in mindfulness meditation but who brought that in at a pace in a way that a kind of standard conventional um, 
foundation is now bringing this into the schools in the town of Flint. If it can happen in the town of Flint, I think, it can happen everywhere. And the kinds of challenges in the schools and the hospital and in, in, you know, in, the, in the streets are, are, are the same in a lot of places as they are in Flint. So these are two examples that I couldn't have predicted to you, even, you know, last year about the pace. So it's an interesting ride. And I think at Mindful and Mindful.org, our role is kind of like, let's tell these stories. Let's support this work. Let's create special publications to help support the learning for these folks and connect Louisville to uh, Flint. And um, who knows? You know, I, mean, I didn't know about the Flint thing. That's an amazing story. I'm glad you told it. Uh, the so I, I'm just I, I'd love to talk a little bit about what the challenges are going forward for mindfulness in in our culture. One of them seems to me, but I I really like to hear your view on this is concerns that you hear from I think well intentioned people who that 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 this is sectarian in nature that. Um, that this is stealth Buddhism. You're a Buddhist practitioner. Uh, I'm a self-described Buddhist. Um, you know, we can argue about what Buddhism actually is, or uh, and all that. But but it, this is really a perception game we're playing here. And and uh, I think it it is hard to argue that mindfulness, secular mindfulness, is derived from Buddhism. So how, when people say, "I don't want this taught in my school because this is this is uh, basically a religious practice." Uh, how do you respond to that, and how big a problem do you think this is going to be f- is going to be for this industry going forward? As an advocate for mindfulness in the schools, if I thought somebody was bringing mindfulness in the schools in order to promote Buddhism, I'd be against it too. I think that's wrong. And as a matter of fact, I disagree with your assessment. You know of the of the the nature of the relationship between Buddhism and mindfulness, uh, as we describe it in the pages of Mindful Magazine. Uh, mindfulness is a common human inheritance. It's, it's innate in human beings. And we've learned now that it's trainable, that you can train your brain and you can train your capacity to develop that sense of, of, of awareness of your thoughts and emotions and your ability to respond and not react. Can I just jump in for a second? Yeah. I fully agree with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is a basic human yeah. capacity. Yeah. But, you know, mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction, which was uh, in, uh, pioneered by a guy named John Kabat-Zinn, uh, which is really what has, in many ways, led us to this point, which was the first secular uh, and replicable protocol for teaching mindfulness meditation to people uh, and in a way that then got studied uh, and we were able to cite those studies. And, and that really, I think, in my understanding of the history, and you can correct me because I'm probably veering off into, uh, uh, into wrong-headed territory in many of the things I'm saying, but, and I'll leave, you, leave it to you to correct me there. But nonetheless, John Kabat-Zinn was, t- was taking his Buddhist practice and stripping out the Buddhist lingo and the metaphysics. And so, yeah, I don't think mindfulness is a Buddhist thing. It's a human thing, but it was described very well by the Buddhists for millennia, and it is the tradition, the vehicle, which kept this alive for a long time. Obviously, it was um, contemplative practices were alive and well and are alive and well in many other religious uh, communities, too. But I think you can't hide the ball on the fact that mindfulness, as it's currently uh, uh, taught to most people, is derived from Buddhist, basic Buddhist meditation. So correct me where I'm wrong on that stuff. <laughs> well, I have, a different, I have a different way of describing it, which I think is actually a nuance that makes all the difference for the way in which it stands a chance of being adopted by, by, you know, a wide swath of our population and people that we care about. Um, Imagine two circles, a large circle and a small circle. If you make Buddhism the large circle as a religion, uh, Buddhism is the thing that created mindfulness, and the arrow goes to the small circle, and then the small circle is mindfulness. And mindfulness is derivative it's being it's a translation of the bigger circle and anybody that gets involved in that smaller circle is going to be looking for well you know where, where does the this real really stuff? Yeah. come yeah. from yeah. right yeah. um i switched at, at mindful we switch the contents of those circles the human innate quality of being mindful fills the big circle that is inclusive of everybody of people from other cultures 
of other religions, of other orientations to how to work out this challenging human thing. So saying that that big circle is mindfulness and that the small circle is the fact that the Buddhists over the last 2,500 years have done some really deep and helpful research on that human capacity means that that big circle can include everybody. And, you know, the smaller circle is the derivative of the larger circle. And once you say that mindfulness is a human, innate human capacity, you've got to put the mindfulness in the big circle, it seems to me. And evidence of that came to me back in those early years on the farm where I was exploring a lot of different traditions of meditation. I didn't reject them because they weren't genuine. They weren't particularly the one for me. So I think where you're right is saying the manifestations we currently see of mindfulness practices in application are largely patterned after what people have learned in a Buddhist setting. But Buddhists don't own mindfulness, and they don't own those technologies. They develop them, and they've been giving them away for a long time. Uh, But I think it's clearly the case, if you look at uh, what's going on in in places like Louisville, that you're going to see technologies from other traditions weaving into this same story, having benefit, having research done on them, and being part of the story. So I, I just think if we want people to feel there's a place for them in this narrative, we should tell the narrative that's human, not one or the other manifestation of the story. Well, That's my... I think I, I think that analysis has a, a, a lot of merit. I just I'm just more thinking like if you're if you're advocating if 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 you're advocating for getting mindfulness into a public school and there are parents who are unhappy about it, they're not going to be wrong when they say that this practice. John Kabat-Zinn himself says he got the idea for secularizing uh, and and doing, uh, he doesn't like that word, but I'm going to use it anyway, that he got the idea for creating MBSR while on a Buddhist meditation retreat. So they're not wrong factually when they point to the the links to Buddhism in modern secular mindfulness. So how, is that a, a, a hurdle that can, can be vaulted? I'm really terrible at um, analogies. But what you're saying is like, uh, if we bring Indian food in because we're hungry and we want to eat, are we going to be worried that we're all going to turn into people of Indian culture? No, 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 no I'm not. Because I mean, that's not a good analogy because okay. it's religion. We don't allow prayer in schools. Mindfulness for a is not religion. Uh, I agree with that. I'm and, just saying, how do you deal with this? Is how would you say? How would you kindly, compassionately, and accurately? talk a concerned Christian parent off the ledge about the notion that their child might be taught mindfulness meditation in a public taxpayer-supported school. I would share with them the letter that I got from a Texas, um, what do you call people who do religion in hospital, who do... uh, uh, Chaplains? Uh, He he is a chaplain in a uh, very conservative town. He is a Christian, and he wrote a letter to Mindful thanking it for being open and accessible and helping him have a more intimate and direct relationship to God. That was his words. It weren't my words. But they really confirmed to us what we were trying to do, to show that this quality that we are innately born with and the training of it could give you the capacity to lead you wherever you wanted and needed to go in your religious life because of the qualities we say it delivers the ability to not be reactive, to be more aware of your thoughts and your emotions. These are human capacities, and they can lead you to whatever religious beliefs they are important, and we have evidence of that. He's not the only person. This happens to be the most compelling uh, and the one that puts mindful in the best light. <laughs> he was thanking us. Uh, so, I mean, I think that's really going to be, in the end, the success of the so-called mindfulness movement, if it can um, show the widespread benefit that it promises separate from any set of, of religious beliefs. Nonetheless, though, yeah. it's probably going to end up in court, given the, given the fact that it's being taught with increasing frequency in public schools, 
and there are people who aren't going to like that. And and I say that then that's great and fine. I mean, we had one one example of 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 that in in Calmer Choice's work yeah, in Cape Cod. Cape Cod. Yeah. And what happened there was this was a mother. Have you told this story? No, but I've actually spoken yeah. Uh, yeah. to the, that community. You did a fundraiser yeah. for them. Yeah. yeah. This was a mother whose daughter got into a group of friends uh, where they really started doing self-harm. I mean, one of them committed suicide. And she was really worried about where this was going and realized she had to do something to intervene. The school couldn't. And she brought a program called Calmer Choice into her daughter's classroom that had mindfulness as part of it. And through a number of years, five, six years, I think it's 17 schools and 3,000 students, nonprofit, and one of the new board members in the school district uh, took issue in the way that you're describing and had an analysis written um, and brought to the attention of the school board uh, by a think tank in California that had that kind of concern, and it was brought to the attention, and it demanded that the school board stop funding it. The school board assessing the benefit and the impact on the students rejected that pressure and continues to fund that program. So I don't think court is necessarily the only way, but I I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I think if there are genuine concerns, I would support parents raising those questions and addressing those questions because, as I said, if there is, in fact, some hidden agenda by people bringing mindfulness in, or even naivete, because they don't fully understand the issues and are maybe using, without even knowing it, Buddhist jargon, then I think they should be called on the carpet for that. Well said. Do you think there are other, what what do you think are the other major challenges facing mindfulness going forward? Well, I think, you know, one of the huge ones is there's uh, adoption in the workplace, businesses, Uh, David's book, uh, did a great service in in, in um, surveying that. Now, of course, that's that's a rapidly changing scenario. Um, we've kind of reached the point where maybe seventy or eighty percent of the businesses know they should look into this, but maybe ten or fifteen are actually doing anything. Um, so many of what we hear touted as the great examples of corporate uptake are really a single internal champion who's doing this on their own time off the side of their desk with no support from the business. So we shouldn't get too carried away. But say this rolls out, you know, that the interest um, continues. What is actually a successful way of scaling this in a company with, you know, 50,000 employees? How do you get enough good teachers? Um, That's only one of the issues, you know. I mean, but there are many like that in terms of, I mean, we had a wonderful program that the um, leadership of the U.S. Marines identified as something that would help diminish the deterioration of the nervous system for a functioning Marine. Um, And the big challenge wasn't that there weren't enough teachers. The big challenge was there was no time in a Marine's day to do the to do the program. Mm -hmm. You couldn't do it in five minutes. It took eight hours, 16 hours, 20 hours over the span of, you know, eight or 10 weeks. No, just no way that that kind of commitment for a new thing. And I think you're going to have similar, similar problems in, in, in scale up. There, there's nobody ready to scale up, uh, you know, big com- companies. I and mean, Starbucks might be starting with 10,000 people, which is a huge project, but they've got 330,000 employees. So that's that's just a, a drop in the bucket. So how to genuinely, meaningfully scale with all the aspects? It's the teacher, but it's the follow-up. It's the way that it can be integrated into the workplace. That's going to be a huge challenge. I don't think anybody's quite figured it out yet. What about the quality of the science? I'm not a scientist, so I, I, I don't think that I'll comment definitively on that. But I'll tell you what the scientists that we respect are saying. And that is that we've got early stage great indications of possible benefits that are really promising. But the research is at such early stages that the kinds of 
of, of robust longitudinal studies that need to take p- place in order to make any definitive statements, those have not been done. And luckily, it's the leading, the leading scientists in the mindfulness movement who are saying that and wanting to, to really change that and working actively to get bigger studies, more robust studies. Um, so we're very careful in the pages of Mindful to, are. To, to, to both say science is indicating that this is a good thing for you and a good thing in these following six ways, but it is not definitive. And don't have anybody tell you, as people are, that you know science is proven. That is not the case. Now that I've riled you up and asked you all the hot button <laughs> questions I can think of, um, can you give us a sense of what your daily practice is, or is it even daily? What, what are your, whatever your practice is, what do you do when you when you meditate? Well, the um, frequency um, of formal practice, taking time out of my schedule and practicing, happens on two ways. It happens either in uh, you know daily or in retreat. And that's been really challenging over the first four years of the startup for Mindful. It's been a, it's been a terribly difficult thing, especially, you know, my time away from work has been really limited. So I've done a couple of things. I've had to shorten daily practice um, and um, find many more ways to weave practice into my activities, which I've enjoyed, you know, quite a lot. My f- more daily or formal practice is a form of shamatha or mindfulness practice, a breath practice. Um, so you sit down, you notice the feeling of your breath at some point, I, your belly, your nose, or your chest, and then when you get lost, you start again? Fundamentally, and there's some, you know, there are ways of mixing that breath with space that make it more three-dimensional, which is an elaboration. I don't understand uh, that. <clears throat> well, I would say this way. Um, from my point of view, the um, fundamental point of mindfulness practice is, and I think you say this very well, you talk about no longer being led around by the thoughts rambling in your head. And that's, um, that's an ongoing uh, practice. And going back to when I talked about you know taking LSD, it was the experience brought on from this of the sense of a bigger world outside of that thought structure and being connected to to bigger things. Um, the discipline of bringing your mind to the attention on your, say, your out breath, is um, a practice uh, training your attention, having that out breath dissolve into space connects your mind processes with a bigger space and has the same effect of dissolving the centralization. From my point of view of the single, the single biggest um, um, obstacle in all those thoughts is it just it centralizes ourselves. It, it brings us back to this central reference point through which we're warding off or overcoming or fighting with. So the central reference point of me, me of me 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 me, 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 in all of its different forms. So that uh, practice, a way of mixing mind with breath, is a way of of of, of enlarging the space. So at the so, end uh, of the breath, you just kind of get a sense of um, the space that extends infinitely beyond you and your. It's a little. Concerns. It's simpler. It's much simpler. And following or being one with your breath as it leaves your nostrils or your mouth. It naturally dissolves into space. You follow that out into space. And what happens before you naturally breathe in is there is a momentary gap. Just natural. Then you breathe back in and your attention comes to your breath and you breathe out again. The, 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 the breath just dissolves into space and there's a momentary gap. Training yourself to bring your attention to your breath is one part of mind training. The experience of the momentary gap is a break in the incessant mental talking, self-talk. Yeah, but what if you're an idiot like me and you fill that break with like your to-do list? It's more a question of like all the rest of this practice, noticing what's happening rather than filling it up. That gap is happening all the time. Your speed of your habitual mindset means that you don't pay attention to it. In the same way that that's true about our bodily fluids, we I mean, bodily fluids, our bodily functions. We feel 
our emotional states and mental states in our body, but we're not paying attention to it. So a lot of the practices are about how to tune in to how those things arise in the body. And you can catch your experience there before you manifest out. A lot of the practices are about that. So that sort of thing's happening all the time. The practice is slowing down your mental processes to experience them. We've had, you and I have had many, many conversations over the past several years as you've started this uh, magazine and website and as it continues to evolve. And it's been tough. You said it already. Uh, it's, just, it's hard get starting something up that, uh, in this way. Do you think your practice has been useful and helpful for you as you've gone through all this? Yes, I think very much so um, in two ways. There's a really wonderful, inspiring, short uh, Tibetan Buddhist text, only a few pages, that's around on the internet. It's called The Way of Ma'ati. And there's a simple line in there that I think call, talks directly about this, and that is about how the simple everyday practice is being um, open to every experience, situation, and to all people without blockages or obstruction and without continually centralizing back into yourself. Now, it sounds kind of theoretical, but at a certain point I realized that's what I was doing all the time. Every experience I had was filtered through the, the constant sense of me and you know what I'm getting out of the situation or how I'm manipulating the situation. Turning the tables on that, paying more attention to other or not creating that sense of blockage or obstruction is a wonderful way of integrating practice into daily life, especially for someone like me whose everyday work is going around the country talking to all these great people and hearing their stories. And, and so it's a way in which my work and my practice have come together since it's been very hard to integrate more formal practice as much as I might have been used to finding ways to integrating my practice into my work, like all of us are hoping to bring those worlds together, that's one way it's happened for me, and, and, and that's been really, really helpful. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's always a great time. I, I hope whatever we've talked about is uh, going to be helpful to your listeners. I think it will be. And just thank you for all the work you're doing at Mindful. Everybody should read it. Mindful Magazine, mindful.org. Well done. Go a there. Promotion there. <laughs> um, uh, and, and if you're in, if you're in the philanthropic world, um, send me an email. Yes, you should send him an email. Should we should we give your email address? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's right on the on the website. jgimian at mindful org. And also, thank you for just being a great friend, uh, just as a friend, friend, and also as, as a, an incredibly valuable advisor to me as I've just muddled through this thing for the last couple of years. And and it's just worth repeating that you. You and Barry, who will be on the show at some point, do a great service, not only in your work for what you produce at Mindful and, and Mindful.org, but also in, in the connections you, you make among behind the scenes and almost never getting credit for it. Just connecting people, uh, advising people, uh, checking in with people. It's incredibly valuable and deeply appreciated. So thank you. Kind words again. I know you probably want the last word, but for us— the path you've been going along of your inquiry, your boldness in telling your story, and your relentlessness in wanting to have this conversation on a wide scale, very inspiring and very educational for us to, to be part of in our conversations and to watch you do it. So thank you very much. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. 
Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.